Hello, my name is Eric Jacobson. Welcome to the Critical Teaching and Learning Forum podcast. The Critical Teaching and Learning Forum started out as a group of educators in New Jersey who came together once a month to have an open discussion about teaching from a left perspective in a variety of contexts, including middle school, high school, college, and adult education. The forum now has a website that features articles, resources, and news of upcoming events, and we encourage you to check it out. Today's guests on the podcast are Saul Fusner and David Senderoff, two high school teachers from New Haven, Connecticut. Saul and David have extensive experience with facing history on ourselves, and the discussion focuses on how they refine their own approach to the material. A pivotal moment in their experience is when an African-American student challenged them to move beyond units of study that all involved the oppression of black people. In response, Saul and David were part of a team that developed a curriculum for teaching the troubles in Northern Ireland as a means of exploring issues of political violence and reconciliation. During the episode, they talk about creating lesson plans, what they learned on a research trip to Northern Ireland, and what the student response has been. Thanks, Saul and David, for joining me here today on the the Critical Teaching Learning Forum podcast. And before we get into troubles and teaching the troubles, Mm -hmm. I'd like to know just what your journey was to becoming teachers. Not everybody goes to school, knows they want to be a teacher, studies teaching, and ends up teaching, right? So how did you end up becoming teachers? So for me, um, it was kind of a careful what you wish for kind of thing, because my plan was always to be a writer who taught. Uh, And my father was a college professor, and my mother uh, ran her own nursery school. Um, so I was coming in with educators all around me. I knew I always, I always wanted that job. I wanted to be like the writer in residence at some university and stuff like that. And when I finally got a job, um, at Hunter college, actually, um, teaching film studies, um, it was like my dream. And then I learned what it is to be an adjunct professor, uh, and to have like no health care. And, um, at first, like, it was, you know, $65 an hour sounded like amazing. I was like, great, $65 an hour. And then I learned it was only for those hours you were teaching and one hour uh, of office time. So if I worked like two classes, that was like seven hours. If I worked one class, that was four hours. So, um, so I realized it wasn't very much money. Um, at a certain point, I was going to have a kid. I needed to have a job that had healthcare and stuff like that. Um, so I stepped down to the high school level, uh, from the college level of teaching, um, being completely naive, rose-colored glasses. I thought, I'm going to walk into the room and command it just like I did at Hunter <laughs> College. They're just going to be like, okay, teach me. I want to learn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I had my first year, I don't know if we can swear on the podcast, was just a shit show, just a total shit show. Like, I did not know how to control the kids and stuff like that. But I learned... Um, during the shit show year that the kids express their love in a weird way. Um, but in urban school, they still, they, they sort of love you when they, when they see the human side of you. So like years later, whenever I see these kids, you know, out in the store somewhere, they just love me. And I'm like, don't you remember how you made my life miserable, (laughs) but they just completely love you. So, um, so I learned that, um, I think what I took away was that teaching is somewhere in between controlling the room and giving the kids the ability to express themselves and let them in a certain way control the room, right? You don't want them to completely control things. You know, you want to have a sense of control. Uh, and it's almost like, so I, I had been a screenwriter 
And in observing the way a film crew worked, um, I looked at the director and I noticed that um, the best directors were extremely over-prepared so that on the set they could improvise. Mm -hmm. Anyone who comes to the set and just like, oh, we're going to improvise, whatever, sucks, right? Yeah. But anyone who like over-prepares then you loosen up once you get there. And I think teaching is a little bit like the film director thing where you over-prepare, you make sure you know, okay, this is going to take 20 minutes, this part's going to take 30 minutes. But then once you get in the classroom, this conversation's going really well. The kids are really taking to this. Let's, let's spend another 10 or 15 minutes. Let's see where they go with this. Um, so that was a hard lesson for me to learn. I thought I had to control everything at first. And that first shit show year taught me that sometimes there is a little bit of magic that happens when you loosen the reins, as long as you're very prepared in advance. Yeah, I mean, I think the preparation, right, as you're suggesting, is not putting things down to this is going to be two minutes and this is going to be five minutes, but right. knowing not only the content, but the questions you want to ask about the content. Right. And if you're clear yeah. about the questions you want to ask, then yeah. you can get to those questions any number of ways. Right. And, um, but, and I think you're also right that it's not just completely handed over uh, to the students. Right. There was a great onion headline a number of years ago, which I often show in my classes, which is, is like a teacher who learns more than students fired. Yeah, 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 right. That's a perfect headline, right? People want to problematize the student-teacher dynamic, and that's true. You should problematize the teacher-student dynamic. But at the end of the day, you're responsible, right? They're giving you their time. They're giving you their energy. Right. You're responsible for part of that dynamic, right? Right. And that's knowing the content and and knowing some of the questions. And they're going to surprise you. You know, they're going to surprise you – and when that happens, when you get those surprises, that's, that's when it's going to feel really alive. Um, when things are not surprising, um, that's a dull day. You want some of that surprise. And actually, later we'll probably talk about this kid who stood up in the middle of this, this film in, in Rwanda. And I have to say, that kid was a very difficult student. Um, and and that's a, oftentimes, that's the students you remember. It was a kid who was constantly challenging and oftentimes like in a, in a way that felt unserious in a way that felt um disruptive um but years later looking back i look at that student and i say um that student was a certain type of leader um who sort of um pushed my thinking mm-hmm. in my in the zine that I write late to the party, I just wrote a thing about Roosevelt Franklin, who was this Muppet from the early seventies, right. Who was sort of canceled after a while. But the lesson that I got from Roosevelt Franklin is that you can have fun and be serious at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the classroom, you can be, you know, enjoying it. You can be joking around, but you can still be quite serious about learning and then also be quite serious about teaching. Right. There's no, those things are not mutually exclusive. Um, David, what about yourself journey to teaching? Right. Yeah. Uh, first thing is nice to meet you and thanks for having us. Um, so I, I grew up uh, in high school in the eighties and I was pretty rudderless. Um, that's the only way I kind of know how to describe it. I had a lot of, you know, motivation to, to see the world improve. You know, my parents, uh, sort of raised me, uh, by taking us to New York for, for protests and marches and uh, in high school, you know, the only club I belonged to was uh, I, I, we would do this uh, thing called the Yale Students for Nuclear Disarmament. 
and we would, you know, be around, you know, somewhat older students, college age students. And, and, uh, it felt very empowering at the same time. I, uh, I just, I was so immature. I didn't want to put the hard work in. I, I really didn't have, uh, an academic work ethic. And, uh, I was, it's, it's probably a surprise to people who knew me in high school that I ended up being a teacher. Uh, it's, it's ironic. What, what happened with me was I, um, you know, high school ends and, um, you know, I decided very young to move out that, uh, I could do it independently. And I quickly found myself in a position where the military made a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I, I just, uh, I had made an attempt at community college. Um, but I just didn't really have the wherewithal and, and I didn't have the finances to make a lot of mistakes. And so when the mistakes came, uh, I withdrew and, um, I just, I, you know, I'm very impulsive. I went to a recruiter and said, I, I just need college money, you know, please, please help me out. And, um, so I ended up joining the, uh, the army infantry. I was lucky enough to be stationed in Germany and begin to get some exposure to what sort of the rest of the world is like, what other people are like. And, uh, and, and I, I, I guess I, I, luckily I was naturally able to, to learn how to function as, 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 you know, an authentic self, as well as work within the culture of other people, places, and things which, which I'm very grateful for. When I, when I got out, I, uh, I had it in my head that I was going to be a musician. <laughs> so, you know, like everyone else we went to Los Angeles and uh, gave it the old try. Um, and, and soon enough, I sort of realized like, okay, this isn't going to work. You know, I just, you just, I just don't have it. And, and it, uh, you know, it, I, I got, a, I got, it was in my early twenties. I I'd had a pretty decent job. I was actually a, a parking enforcement officer for the city of Beverly Hills for about five years. And I, I worked a shift where I could go back to school slowly. Um, and I ended up graduating from, uh, California state Northridge, which, um, for people in Connecticut, uh, imagine Southern or central or, or Eastern, you know, a state college. And I, at, this was the nineties. And I thought that I should be a computer science major, uh, that turned out and involved quite a bit of math, which wasn't my, uh, <laughs> wasn't my specialty. <laughs> and so I, uh, I was actually sitting in a class, um, I guess it was US one in college. It was a requirement. And I met uh, a woman named Dr. Lydia Otero, who the last time I checked with her, she's in the uh, university of Arizona as a professor. And, and what she, what she taught us was not the high school history with the names and dates and places and, and the quizzes for content. What she taught was critical thinking. And she started to teach historiography and the idea that, you know, history is a record of the past, but it's also a record of the past based on a person's perspectives and motivations. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't that sort of what they call a classic sort of a Whig history. You know, America is a story of progress and therefore eliminate the things that make it difficult to prove that. And that really changed my mind. I think, you know, for the first time in that class, I decided to be a history major, but I also decided uh, that I wanted to be a teacher, that that really was the role. Um, so, so I ended up, um, we, you know, we moved back, my wife, my ex-wife and I moved back to, uh, Connecticut where we're both from. And, uh, I switched from, uh, going to grad school in Trinity college to going to university of New Haven, uh, under the education program. And, uh, I took the internship option because, you know, I'd already used my army college fund. And so what I did was I was, I was also lucky enough to, to be in New Haven public schools. Uh, I interned at career and they sort of said, all right, well, now we're going to have you go to a uh, suburban school district to student teach. And I, uh, I asked not to. I, I just liked, uh, I liked New Haven. I liked, I, liked, I liked the dynamic. I liked the kids. 
Um, and, and that, that internship experience was, was really fortunate for me. It was, it was, uh, you know, what I learned is, you know, teaching itself is a human endeavor. And what I like is working with people. And when you work with young people, it's, you get, you, you do get a sense of, of immediate gratification. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're working with a kid and, and a kid walks in with a perception about what school is supposed to be, what a teacher is supposed to be. And, you know, Saul talked about this a lot. This, this sort of like, uh, you're, 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 there's no safety net and you're, you're, you're sort of playing a role and the improvising. you have to be, it taught me how to be, to, to use, you know, being clever and, and maybe a little bit sarcastic when I was younger into a, a faculty in which you can get a kid to sort of say, all right, maybe this stuff isn't too bad. Maybe this guy actually cares. And, and through that, I found, and, and hopefully it's, it's more often than not, that, that what happens is, you know, kids begin to come to have a sense of, of trust and admiration for you that, that extends them into a place where they can, at the end of it, just have better choices for themselves. So, so where, where my choices at the end were to, you know, get a job in a restaurant, you know, or go to the army, um, I, I ended up working into a place, you know, with, with the help of my drill sergeant that I can, uh, that I can really do anything that I choose because I, I now know that, you know, there's, there's a way in the method and I have the capacity and I can find people who believe in me. That's, that's the most satisfying part about being a teacher is letting kids really see that they too are intelligent enough. They can develop their wisdom enough and they can find the right people to help them even when they feel sort of outnumbered. Yeah. I mean, I think two things that you said are really important. One, I think is that we often hold off on historiography until college Right. And I think if history was framed as historiography starting young, then many more students would be interested in history. Right. And they would understand how different narratives are being contested and the tensions yeah. within stories like they would get a better sense of what's at stake. I think yeah. when we're talking about history. If from the early age, we're like, look, people fight about this. People are still fighting about this. And this is why it matters. And I think the other thing that connects to that, which is what you what you talked about, is like being human to our students. Right. Sure. And I think one of the ways that we can be human to our students is share what we're passionate about. Right. Including history or including, you know, current events, you know, what nuclear disarmament. Right. Or, yep. you know, other political things. Right. I think when we bring ourselves into the classroom, that's when students know that we're not fronting. Right. Right. Yeah. And if you're a little sarcastic, you're a little sarcastic. Right. If you're funny, you're funny. I, I, you know, I remember I was doing a workshop number of years ago and, and somebody asked me like, Oh, so should I try to be funny in the classroom? And I'm like, if you're funny, right. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're not funny, please don't try to be funny in the classroom. Right. So if you're sarcastic, naturally sarcastic, which being from the Northeast, it's sort of like baked into us, right? Like, yeah, go with that sarcasm. You can't really, you can't really fake it. The, the most important thing is invest in what's going to generate camaraderie in I, actually, in whatever you do, but definitely in your classroom and 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 in among the faculty in your school, I think that's probably critical to to any enterprise and its success. Yeah. So then, so then that's thanks for sharing about your background. So then we're going to fast forward to working on the facing history curriculum, right? So here's an example of students being exposed to what's at stake in history, right? And why we, why we care about studying history. Um, and do either one of you want to talk about your sort of getting initially brought into the facing history curriculum and sort of your first steps in it? Well, I, 
I would say our, our, the school where I used to teach and where Dave still teaches is unusual in that it, it was one of three schools in the country that first started the Facing History network of schools. So Facing History used to be something that individual teachers were bringing to schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and the New Haven Academy, from its founding, said, we are a Facing History school. It's not just that one teacher brings it in or a few teachers do it. It's, it's, it is our curriculum so that when we, so freshman year, every freshman is in a facing history and ourselves Holocaust and human behavior seminar with taught by one of the humanities teachers. So four humanities teachers in the department, each one has a section of that. Mm -hmm. um, and that curriculum was developed early and neither Dave or I developed exactly that curriculum, mm -hmm. but we had a lot of leeway to bring in other stuff. Like when, when, uh, facing history came out with, uh, the book on anti-Semitism, we worked that into the curriculum as well as some stuff that already existed there, but that was such a planned curriculum. But what we got to do was create the 10th grade curriculum. Mm -hmm. which was going beyond the Holocaust and looking at societies that had uh, a great deal of inequity for a long period of time. And then how do those societies try to move towards justice and reconciliation? Not that they necessarily ever get there, but what do they do to try to get people living together again? Mm -hmm. um, and so that curriculum has always started with a little historiography, actually, um, inquiry activities around uh, the Armenian genocide that's a very short unit. And then the longer units in that class were traditionally South Africa and Rwanda. South Africa leading to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Rwanda leading to Gachacha. But, uh, but then that changed and we had to develop something new. Um, and I think it was right before Dave... Uh, arrived yep. at the school, we started to develop the Northern Ireland Troubles Unit. Uh, and then Dave arrives and, and really helped us um, continue to develop that, uh, including the eventual grant where, where uh, Dave and I actually went to Belfast and to Derry, et cetera. So before we get to Ireland, so South Africa and Rwanda were chosen mostly because the sort of contemporary issues or yeah, I think they would provide... Uh, so I think, because this was developed by the person who's the program director of our school, sort of like an assistant principal, and I think her thinking was that these were two countries in which one part of the population uh, had in some way dominated or hurt another part of the population, and in both cases there was a seeking towards reconciliation. Now, I think over the time that we've taught South Africa, I think we've realized more and more that the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, didn't really resolve the problems because it didn't uh, address um, the land inequities that, um, that existed. It just addressed the, the, the issues, the, the actual violence. Um, but at first, I think our thinking was sort of like, wow, isn't this cool what they did? Um, you know, we, we, we were moving as a school towards uh, having uh, a sort of um, restorative justice mm -hmm. uh, be a part of the school. So looking at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was really something we wanted to do. And then in Rwanda, they had this 
moving back to traditional African ideas about reconciliation with this thing called gachacha. So those things seem to align in terms of like, let's look at, um, also there's a component in, in uh, facing history in all the curriculum that starts from let's look at ourselves, let's, mm-hmm. let's journal about ourselves, let's look about how we behave in groups and how we otherize people, and then let's look at this case study. So these were all case studies after the students were sort of examining their own behavior. Well, I mean, it's often, that's like a natural first pass through, right? Like nobody's going to be against truth or reconciliation, right? Both of those are, both of those are good ideas. And then when you get into the details, I think you're right in South Africa, the, the underlying economic structures have not really been affected. Right. And that's right played itself out both in, in racial disparities, but continuing class disparities that are, you know, creating tensions within that, within that country. Um, how much of those uh, sort of history curriculum was integrated with other subject areas? Was there planning time for sort of crosswalks between the history and the English or the history and the science or the history, you know, the math, anything like that? Dave, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of how best to answer that. We we have periodically taken units that we were doing and brought them to, mm-hmm. um, you know, had them transfer over to other departments, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, literature. It seems like it fits in mm-hmm. best. School-wide um, project. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. School-wide project where it's a common theme in which uh, we sort of spend a day looking at uh, – looking at how different teachers from different backgrounds, you know, different subject matter can make uh, a new lesson for the kids um, and then have them sort of regroup and, and reflect on, on, on this, you know, this sort of like one shot, one off thing, which is, which is actually really cool to do. Um, but we, you know, we're, we're also trying to, so the school has, you know, uh, a model, you know, think critically, be responsible and uh, get involved. Yeah. Thank you, Saul. <laughs> so of course on the spot and getting involved. And so like when you, when you look at like South Africa, even though in the long term we, we have sat down and questioned, should we continue the South Africa unit? A lot of the themes, um, you know, the, the restoration of a benevolent government that can be reflective of its own mistakes. You know, that's something that we, we sort of hope that kids can feel can happen here in America and in their lifetimes. Mm. They're, they're, they're very cognizant that they're, they're inheriting a world that, that appears to be dysfunctional, whether that, that, that perception is necessarily true, whether or not people agree with that. We, I think we can all agree that to be a young person in 2021 mm. can be a little uneasy. And so by, by demonstrating these other countries, um, you know, Northern Ireland, for example, in which they had, you know, peace talks and, and, and things were very hard in their streets at that time, but yet they do move to, to, to correct this. It helps them sort of understand that, you know, in, in their lifetimes, the world that they're inheriting that it is perceived to be mismanaged pretty well. Uh, it can be fixed and it can be solved as long as they have the wherewithal to be active and, and, and participate in that change. Well, I mean, each one of those countries is an ongoing case study, right? So, yeah. I mean, the story's not over in, in, in those three, those three countries. So, so, it's part of a school-wide curriculum. Mm. You're teaching it for, you know, a few years. And then I know that there was kind of a pivot point, which you've, you've shared. And so I don't know if you want to talk about this experience of, you know, a student really calling you on the carpet about something that they probably rightfully were calling you on the carpet for. Yeah. So, um, 
So this is, we're, we're teaching this. This is around 2010, maybe 2011. Um, we're in the middle of the Rwanda unit. I've taught it for many years. It sort of just flows at this point. Um, there's a point at which we're watching a documentary. So we're seeing real, real people in Rwanda. And there's a moment in the film where the UN workers, most of whom are Europeans, uh, white skin, um, are getting on a helicopter to get out of Rwanda before the shit hits the fan. And the Tutsi, Tutsi people are standing on the tarmac. They're literally standing on the tarmac where the helicopter's leaving. And the helicopter fills up and leaves. And you just see these Tutsi people who know they are probably going to die. I mean, I don't think they knew quite the extent of the genocide that was about to happen, but they're standing on the tarmac and watching the helicopter leave. And one of my students who was black, who's African-American, he stands up and he says, stop the film. So I stop it. And he says, why are we always seeing these stories of black oppression? Why can't we see a story of white oppression? And at first I thought, you know, I sort of laughed. People in the class were laughing. I was like, white oppression, black oppression, you know, but it really made me think because, you know, I was a little bit as a white teacher, kind of, I, I realized without, you know, subconsciously, I think I was patting myself on the back. We're showing these stories of, of black struggle, but then somewhat overcoming that struggle. And I hadn't considered the fact that even though we're showing the overcoming for a long period of time in these units, we are watching black suffering first in, under apartheid. And now we've gone into uh, Rwanda uh, with what the Tutsi suffered. And uh, so I said, you know, you're actually right, which I think surprised him. He was used to there being a little friction. I was like, you're actually right. And he, and he just got this look on his face like, I am, you know, and, uh, and I immediately went to, uh, a colleague at the time and I said to him, can, can we, can we shift this away from Rwanda? And I, cause I had in my head, I was like, I know if they want white suffering, man, you know, there's a country with this suffering who tried to do something about it with the, with the, you know, good Friday accords, like this is, uh, this is ripe for, for Northern Ireland. And also I just have, I've always had an interest in Ireland and I'd been there and that just really excited me. Like, can we do this with Northern Ireland? Um, because I mean, there, there is something that's funny um, with the way teenagers think about a lot of this stuff. Um, because I do remember when we first started teaching Northern Ireland, there was another student, similar, similar kind of personality where he stopped me. Uh, when we were talking about Northern Ireland, I think this was the first time we taught it. And he goes, wait a minute, the Catholics, they're white, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, they're white. A and the Protestants, they're white too. And I said, yeah. And he went, cool. <laughs> you know, like here are these people who are suffering. Here's all this violence in the streets. Um, and, and, and these are white people. He was used to the streets of of New Haven and the way all the, cr the crime is reported and living in certain neighborhoods. And, and he was like, whoa, this can happen with white people too. Um, and then, you know, it just, it fits so neatly because, um, because the peace agreement in Northern Ireland was 
really, I, I think like historically, uh, it's like one of the few times in history where it's like, we're, go we're going to take 30 years of violence and we're going to try to solve it with politics right? Poli we're, we're all always knocking politics, right? We're, we're knocking those things like compromise and stuff like that. And to see these people have the ability to compromise after 30 years of incredible violence in the streets with, with bombs, um, with targeted shootings, um, all this stuff um, is, is a, a pretty incredible achievement. Now, once Dave and I, you know, we'll talk later about the grant, but once we got to Northern Ireland and we're sitting down in the parliament, like in Stor Stormont, I guess, in the parliament of Northern Ireland, we're sitting down with a politician. And we, and I say this, like, we are so impressed with you for 30 years uh, of violence, having this political sol solution. And he's like, well, he's from the SDLP. He said, if it was up to my political party, we would have solved it in 1974. You know, 24 years earlier, you know, what took them so long? Like the, the major parties, uh, you know, um, Sinn Féin and the unionists, you know, it took them till 1998. He's like, we were ready to sit down in 1974, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think sometimes young students' reactions are misread, right? So I think mm -hmm. when your students said, cool, Right. You know, he's not celebrating violence. He's not celebrating, you know, the fact that these people are suffering. Right. It's right. he's saying, cool. Like there's there's other stories that I haven't been told, which are right. like yeah. changing yeah. the way that people see the world. And I think people can misread the kid that stands up in, in the middle of the class and says, hey, can we yeah. stop doing this? Right. Like right. they're communicating the honestly and the best way that they know how. And I don't think that we're the grownups and grownups generally suck anyways, but I think grown ups <laughs> aren't always prepared to hear what kids are saying when they're saying it really honestly. Right? Oh, it's yeah, scary. It's yeah. scary. Cause you're like, I've got all these lessons lined up and he's saying this curriculum needs to change. And you're like, what do I do now? How, how do I prepare? I, I was all ready to teach this stuff. Um, and you have to pivot. Um, but that was so exciting. The pivot was so exciting because it was like, now we have to learn. Like I had a vague sense of Northern Ireland and now I had to become an expert in it. Um, and I had to become an expert in it alongside kids. I had right. to learn it while kids were learning it. So of course I fell in love with it because it was being a student all over again with the kids. You know, I'd, I'd been teaching Rwanda for a while and it was a little bit clockworky, you know? Uh, so it was probably a little clunky, to be honest. Uh, not clunky. It was, it was too predictable. And yeah. now all of a sudden I'm like, you know, now I'm in a space where a student can say, well, how come this happened in Belfast? And I can say, you know what? I don't know. Let's try to figure this out together, you yeah. know? I think, I think, and I think the flip side of the kid saying cool, right, is the kid that has, the student that has uh, bought in to the sort of flattened curriculum, that has bought into the sort of like standardized rhythm. You know, when I talk to undergrads or some of my students, you know, about their learning history, they'll, many of them say things like, oh, you know, when I was in middle school, like, you know, I really love the Holocaust. And I'm like, you mean you loved reading about the Holocaust or you like, you loved studying about the Holocaust, right? But 
But I love the I'm Civil always, War, people say. I love the Civil, the Civil War. Civil people, War. Those people, I'm always like, yeah, like, you, are you happy with who won? But, um, but when a student says that they loved reading about the Holocaust, I'm bothered by that because I think that what that means is that the curriculum was too pat, right? That like, that they could study about the Holocaust, like here's the bad people, here's the people that were the victims, here's kind of our lesson about like being nice to each other and about tolerance, right? You should come out of studying about the Holocaust fucked up at some part in my French, right? Like it should, it should raise questions for you that, that can feel productive because they're about what it means to be human, right? Or what it means to learn. But I don't, I, I don't know. I always feel like the language that I'd want to hear is something like I felt inspired or I felt engaged or I felt challenged, like by hearing about the Holocaust or reading about the Holocaust, but not, I, I loved hearing right. about the Holocaust. Yeah. I cut you off. Oh no, that's okay. I, uh, I, I'm actually just thinking about what you just said. And, and one of the things that happens uh, with me is I then begin to sort of, you know, change uh, points and I'll say, all right, so what we need to study now is really the, uh, the what, what would say like what Adams or Jefferson talked about when they spoke about the mob and what the mob can do. And through that, we can look at things like uh, demagogues and that right away brings up um, the way politics has gone in the, in recent history. Uh, maybe accelerated since, you know, we've had talk radio hosts that became popular and this, the single source of sensationalized media for, for many people. And we can have students uh, learn about uh, media bias and how they can, you know, detect when something is true and what does it take to actually verify facts. I, I, I wanted to say earlier um, when Saul was speaking about his aha moment, uh, mine, mine comes in smaller waves, but I've had it as well. One of the things you can guarantee that an adolescent will do is, is be truthful to you, uh, not necessarily about where they were when they're late to class or having to go to the bathroom to use a cell phone, but, but they'll tell you exactly how they feel, and they have no problems um, mincing words with you. And so when, when, you, when you're speaking about curriculum that, that they feel is out of place for their uh, for their archetype or their personality, they they're quick to say, and this has happened to me is even as even yesterday is when will we learn something about this or why does it seem like we're always learning about uh, or whatever? And 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 recently they you know I had a student say, Mister, why are we always learn about slavery? And I said, you know the the difficult part for us is if we neglect to teach about slavery or um, if Rwanda is the curriculum run, then we have to be careful. We're not misleading you by, by intentionally not teaching it and, and being suspected of or accused of um, eliminating that from the curriculum to, to, to eradicate that knowledge and your ability to study it. So, so that causes the students to think too. The other thing kids are great about doing is kids are much better at concession than in, in a, in a, in a non-threatening argument than, than adults are. Um, and, and it's, you know, I'm, that's one of the things about being a teacher is I, I'm glad that I'm there for that because it does, it does keep me, you know, young in a way, you know, like I'm, I'm very immature for my age, but I'm also, you know, I'm quick to point out that I'm getting a bit, you know, uh, stuck in, stuck in my ways. When you work with, with young people, what happens is you learn that they can say, oh, okay, mister, I see what you're saying. And, and that is a phenomenal success. That's, that's a big aha moment for me because then I, I'm remembering that I have, minds that are still malleable and and I, if i make mine flexible as well then we can start to synthesize new curriculum or or a specific curriculum um and in teaching northern ireland because it's so far from 
you know, your typical American high school uh, teaching unit. It's, it, it's, it's so good because you can use it in this case, like I said, shifting points that we can talk about uh, a specifically religious issue and how that interplays with politics and, and the subjugation of a dominant group versus their version of the other. So then, so then you're modeling kind of being open learners, right? So that here's this new opportunity that presents itself to you. You want to incorporate and make Northern Ireland and the issues in Northern Ireland part of the curriculum. What are some of your first steps to kind of, you know, get up to speed or start to understand what questions you should even be asking about Northern Ireland? Well, so one, one thing that we, that we did from the get go was we, we, we always had a lot of success with the Armenian genocide unit because it started with inquiry. It started with like, here's all these old letters and newspaper articles and figure out what happened here. Um, so we decided that when we do Northern Ireland, we wanted to start with a figure out what happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had inherited uh, from, um, I think it was actually from some teaching they were doing at Corimila, um, just outside actual Belfast. Um, we inherited the, like these cards with little pieces of information on them. And they were used in a certain game that Corimila was doing to teach kids. But we changed the game and we adapted it to be like our um, Armenian uh, unit where it was like, okay, kids get these little pieces of information and can they figure out what's going on? And so there's, there's a poster about Bloody Sunday. Uh, there's, a, there's news items about Ian Paisley's um, talking about Catholics not, not playing soccer with, with Protestants, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these little things. So the kids start with, okay, try to figure out what you can. Like, what is this? Like, is this a letter? Is this a newspaper article? Um, and then what's it saying to me? And then, you know, and then get the kids asking questions. This bombing seems to be taking place in England. What does this have to do with Northern Ireland? Like, this map shows us that there are two countries, Northern Ireland and the Republic of... Why are there two countries on this island, you know? And so they start with those questions, and then from those questions, they start to to move towards answers. So we slowly start to give them stuff that's a little more explicit, but um, trying to start them off like asking questions and, and not getting any answers per se. And then what we started to do with that um, was um, realizing uh, after we did, at first that was just to sort of get them asking the questions, then we move on to the next unit of history. Um, we realized, I think that there's, there's ways in which we can go back to that initial thing that they did at the beginning of the unit and say, remember this? Uh, well, okay, I think we're, we're getting to that. And, you know, and, but, but letting, them, letting them be wrong uh, letting them have make assumptions, letting them um, just experience that different documents. Dave talked about this earlier that you're getting this one source news now. Like you have the one side. Like if if you're conservative, you listen to this one thing, and if you're liberal, you listen to this other thing, and that's the only thing you're seeing. So I think giving them a sense of um, having to figure things out for themselves, they're not getting any commentator. They're not getting anyone telling them this is what happened. Yeah. They're getting the actual primary documents. Um, 
and then trying to put them together to some way that makes sense. So, you know, suggesting to them that the process of doing history is, is active, right? It's not mastering content that you're going to memorize and then spit back to somebody else. Right. But that thinking like a historian, reading like a historian means asking questions about, you know, what is it that I have in front of me? What does it mean? What are the implications and what don't I know? And then where do I go to figure out the answer to this question that I have? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where do they, where do they go next? Like, so once they're like, snap like this is really complicated there's there's two countries here there's two religions here or is it two religions it's the same religion but the same two versions of the same religion and like why don't like each other like where do they go next within the northern ireland unit you mean yeah yeah okay so they they go back and they and you start to learn a little bit of what went on uh, 1916, 1922, just a little bit of that. Like, okay, here's, here's why these are two countries. Um, and then actually what, what we started doing after Dave and I went to Northern Ireland, this is actually the best part of our fund for teachers grant in terms of our teaching was that we got to meet a guy named Alan McBride, at the wave trauma center. That's right. And yeah. He was already like an idol to us. Cause we always watched this video, but his wife, his wife was killed in the, um, in the uh, uh, what's it, what's the name of the street? The bombing and the oh yeah, Fishkill. the Shankill Road, Shankill, Shankill, yeah, Shankill Road, yeah. So she, his, his wife died in the Shankill Road bombing. For a while, he just wanted revenge, uh, and then he said, "We have to stop living like this." And he started. He actually didn't found the Wave Trauma Center, but he started working at the Wave Trauma Center uh, and getting um, Catholics. Catholic and Protestant kids at first in the late nineties, it was like getting these kids together and teaching art classes with them and getting them to express their feelings, getting them to take photographs of their neighborhood and then write about what the photograph symbolized in terms of the conflict. And there were kids who lived on the falls road, like the, the most Catholic part of Northern Ireland and kids who lived on the Shankill road, the most Protestant part of Northern Ireland there in Belfast. And what, what Alan gave us was all these, these books that he had created that were written by these 12 to 18-year-old kids about their experience. So when we came back, all of a sudden, we had this part of our unit where our kids, our teenagers, could see, not through a historian's eyes, not through the typical... Uh, primary source size, but could see kids expressing themselves about the violence in their own neighborhood. So um, initially we had, you know, after the, after the unit where um, students were doing the inquiry activity, then they were going straight into the history. Now, after the inquiry activity, we had the kids looking at kids their age or a little bit younger or a little bit older showing their neighborhoods in a similar way that our, our students can show their neighborhoods and say like, here's the street where my friend's older brother was shot. You know, it was, it was that kind of intimacy that we never would have had if we didn't go to Northern Ireland and meet Alan McBride. Mm -hmm. Right. He gave us these self published books full of uh, like student artwork, student photographs, et cetera. And that yeah, those that was, students in the, their students' journals 
again, they're human beings and not just a statistic in a textbook, right? That like yeah. X number of kids died or like the average and age of a victim, like human being. This is what it feels like to walk down the falls road. You know, this is what it feels like in that actual place. Not exactly now, because the books were put together mainly in the late 90s, early 2000s, but not very long ago. Yeah. Dave, you were going to say? Oh, yeah. Sorry. The other thing that we do is we use a uh, piece of an interview with this same gentleman, and uh, he speaks about what what shifted for him. He talks about uh, going to a conference in which a member of uh, the IRA was there. And up until that point, he says he's, he's had, no one's ever apologized to him for the, uh, the collateral damage that he experienced, you know, his wife being, being murdered. And at one point he writes about, uh, this person from the IRA didn't say, Hey, listen, I'm sorry that this happened, but you have to understand and then continue on. He said, the person looked up and said, what happened to your wife? My wife was wrong. And, and I'm sorry. And that was a big change of heart for him. It, it got him to try to get these groups to together because you know there's so much of a of a deeply personal level involved and so when we when we teach this one of the things that we we like and you know we don't force it but what that what that 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 primary source does is it 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 does get the kids to think and reflect upon what would it take for them to overcome some kind of personal challenge they have um whether it's you know a concession to a family member a friend uh, 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 an aspect of the community and interaction with the teacher, it, uh, it, it gives them an example by which they can see that no matter what things are like in the present moment, you know, the, the future can't always be different. That's, that's a really important part of our unit too. Yeah. So, so you've mentioned a couple of times, the fund for teachers. So how yeah. many years had you been working on the, the Northern Ireland curriculum before you went over to Northern Ireland itself? Six, yeah. Seven? It's all six or six or seven years. And yeah. so then how did you get connected with the fund for teachers? Oh, okay. So actually there's, there's, there's two, there's two steps to this. Cause the first thing was in 2014, we were visited by um, teachers who had a facing history grant. Uh, it was actually an educator from Corey Mila, uh, Sean, brought two teachers from a, a Nendrum College, a high school just outside Belfast and County Down. So they came to observe what we were doing uh, in our school. Not Actually, not just... Uh, we. I thought they were just going to look at our Northern Ireland unit, but they were really interested in the way we taught American history as well. Uh, yeah. And they just came into our classes and they just hung out with us, watched our classes. I remember in my advisory that week... Um, I, I was having students teach things they knew about. So this girl who, who ran track, she was teaching us like starting positions for track. Um, so I like, you know, the Northern Irish teacher and I, they were down for everything. So we raced, you know, we sprinted yeah. together and stuff like that. Um, uh, but, and they were blogging back, they were blogging back home. So they were taking like our students work, creative assignments that, that students were doing and saying like, here's, here's the way that they approached like teaching Jamestown, you know, it was early in the year, uh, in us history. Um, so, so we like, okay, we, first of all, we as a department, I think there's a lot of love in our department. Like four, we're four guys in the humanities department. I haven't taught at that school in two and a half years. I'm still in the same texting group with them. Right. You know, like we, we love each other. We are a very close knit group of, of four guys. And into that come these Northern Irish teachers and they loved us too. 
And so we're going to the pub together. We're watching uh, Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, and we're, you know, you know, we're drinking together, all this stuff. Um, and so, um, so we really wanted to go there. They had come here. We really wanted to go over there. We knew three things. We, we knew three places that we needed to hit. We needed to hit um, Derry and Belfast in Northern Ireland. We needed to hit Dublin, you know, because of the, the post office in 1916. Um, and we, we needed to live fun for teachers. One of the great things they do is they say, okay, go over there, do your study, get your curriculum ready for your teachers, but also experience the place. They yeah. say, don't, don't just go to like these sites. Like, so there were cities where we went to just to get the culture of living in Ireland. Now we went to Galway, we went to Limerick. Um, we went to a lot of other places besides D Dublin, Derry and Belfast. And we went to live with uh, this teacher, Donald, who we knew because he had come over on that grant earlier to our school. We went to live with his family for several days in County Down uh, to experience what it's just like to, to live with a family over there. Um, so that was all part of the grant in addition to, to getting the historical stuff. Um, I had Facing History connect me with Alan McBride. I knew we needed to, to meet Alan McBride and go to the Wave Trauma Center um, uh, through a friend of a friend who works at the UN. Um, there's a, a, a traveler lawyer, actually the first Irish traveler who became a lawyer. Um, he, he welcomed us uh, to his house in Dublin. And, um, and this is the kind of thing. And, and, and this is one thing I love about Dave. Like, like I say, Dave's up for stuff. Like we're doing this Easter 1916 tour with this traveler lawyer. And he says, guys, I'd love to spend the whole day with you, but it's the hurling semifinals. I have to go to, to Croke Park and watch the hurling semifinals. And Dave's just like, Oh, we're doing that. You yeah, know? And I'm like, yeah, we're doing that. That's, that's part of our experience. We need to, be there. So, you know, we knew nothing about hurling. This guy in, in like 15 minutes taught us every rule about hurling. Uh, and then like 40 minutes later, we're sitting in a stadium with 80,000 people cheering on Galway in the semifinals of the most important sports tournament in Ireland. Dave, in addition to knowing the spaces or wanting to interact with the spaces and, and, open yourself up to the culture. What other learning goals had you set for yourself as a, both as a teacher and as a student of Northern Ireland when you went over? Right. Yeah. No, as a teacher, you know, I think that's probably the, the, the most logical part. You want to go there and get any artifacts that you're able to from, you know, every place possible, just because of the, you know, in general, you don't go to Ireland as much as you you'd like to, you know? So we, uh, we did take some tours. We went to uh, a world war one museum. Um, we, we went to, we went to a museum, uh, in Dublin and we were very, uh, curious and interested to find out that they, that do you remember, saw so they had viewed the Armenian genocide in a way that we sort of wondered, you know, is this how we would want our students to think about it? Uh, they had a different perspective on it and it was, uh, it was a little challenging for us. How but, so? Uh, How so? Well, if I remember, they sort of they, they underplayed it as if to say the 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 account of the Armenian experience during the genocide it wasn't really emphasized as a genocide. Um, it was it was downplayed, and we it said we something about, about the Turkish Armenian conflict. 
It was on the I map. Actually, so I think it was a little bit more, more, more blunt and subtle like, than that, wasn't it? Wasn't it like we, we were struck by that? Do you remember? I don't remember exactly, but it, it did make it more sound like a conflict. So this was in the context of they're talking about Easter 1916. So there's a map of stuff that was going around in the world in the 19-teens. And it was something, it just, it, it stopped short of, you know, the Armenian genocide. It, it, so I don't, I guess it wasn't like Turkish-Armenian conflict. It wasn't quite that far, but it was something in that neighborhood. Right. So I was, mean, this, is, this is like always the, you know, the great thing of using history to have students understand the role that language plays, right? And a single, a single word choice can play. I mean, think about American history. It's only been within probably the last five years that I've heard more people talk about, uh, you know, Tulsa as a racial massacre as opposed to a race riot. Right. right. Like a Tulsa race riot gives you this perception of, you know, African-Americans and European-Americans, white Americans are like fighting each other like it's a duel or something. Right. As opposed yeah. to race massacre. Like that's what happened. Right. right. Yeah. That's a great that's a great analogy. It was exactly that. It was that kind of feeling. Um, so sorry. So the, uh, the the other half of your question. So so obviously there was, you know, going there, getting sources, primary, secondary sources. The other part, which which if it wasn't for the fun for the teacher's trip, you would I, I would never I don't think Saul would ever have had this experience is you're you're standing in the same place where something has happened and it does affect you. So we, we often would, um, we, we would be in dairy and you turn your back and you'd see signs that would say dairy, you turn the other way and you would see signs that had London dairy. And one side of the street was, um, the, the Northern Irish flag or the, or the union Jack. The other side was, um, you know, the protest. And we, we had the experience of uh, meeting a tour guide who, uh, this was during, um, was it the Orange Boys March? Saul, do you remember? And so this person had, he had lived on one side of Derry. Well, he lived in Derry his whole life. He lived on one side. He'd never been to the other side because he was uh, Catholic. And, and we had asked him, hey, would you mind showing us the other side of this wall here? And at The first, Apprentice Boys. The Apprentice Boys Parade. And he, at first he's like, I've never been there. I'm not going there. It's, you know, and, and then he conceded. So we, we went and we saw this, uh, you know, relatively patriotic display of of antagonism i guess you could argue and and he he was marveling at it and then he he explained that to us about what it was that and how it was affecting him later that day we uh because this is saul saul Saul, by the way is the visionary he said a lot of nice things about me but this 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 guy is an absolute visionary he, he ends up marching us down to a bridge where we saw some uh, young people gathering and he just starts talking to them and so we're talking to these kids and they're, they're basically, you're watching kids drop off just material for a bonfire, tires and pallets. And I'm like, Saul, like we got to get out of here. What are you doing, man? And he's like, no, I want to talk to these kids. So he's, he's getting a conversation up and he's arousing suspicion of people who were, we didn't realize were in cars down the street until finally they all gathered around us. And then, you know, because of who Saul is, he's able to convince these kids that we're, we're just here to learn about what they're doing. And um, we end up from there going to this uh, cultural festival. What, it, what had happened was the, the Catholics were having a day in which they wanted to celebrate something peaceful, something important to them. But at the same time, it coincided with the Protestants who, because of the Catholics, were 
tripling down on, on their, what they wanted to do. So they had these mass parade and, and if it wasn't for the fun for teachers trip, no one would be able to ever explain or convey to me how that felt from either a Protestant or Catholic perspective. And, and we got to see both sides and really come away with the impression um, that, that these are very deep rooted, deep seated problems that, that, that each culture and our culture as a whole has to experience and has to confront at least with understanding in order to best, best convey it to other people. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I always talk to potential students when I'm interviewing them, when they're applying for the program or various programs is what I prioritize for teachers is a fire in the belly, right? Like a curiosity about something, right? You wake up in the morning and you're like, I need to learn more about this, or I need to figure something out. Right. And if you don't have that fire in the belly, to try to figure something out, then when you're in front of the students and the, they know that, right? Sure. They know that you're cashing your paycheck and you're just kind of going through the motions as opposed to Definitely. like, there's something that like keeps me awake at night and I'm trying to figure out the answer to this thing like at two o'clock in the morning because my brain, you know, won't let me, won't let me rest. Um, so when you came back, how do you, how do you translate that first person experience into curriculum? Right. So you you have this real profound, you know, sort of ground level experience of being in another country, another culture, you know, feeling the tension, feeling the history like in your pores. And then you've got to turn it into a lesson plan. Right. So how do you how do you shift gears with that experience and start to turn it into a lesson plan? Yeah, the big takeaway was the uh, material we got from the uh, the Wave Trauma Center um, in which, you know, saw. Saul and I both, but really, you know, Saul, because Saul is such a visionary teacher, he, um, we, we wanted the kids to be able to translate that an experience that they have. And, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm not able to, to sort of command what, what our students go through. They have their lives and their, their own backgrounds and that's, you know, they own that and they need a release for it. So Saul was able to, to sort of show what these kids during the troubles, in Northern Ireland experienced and, and, and write this or, or he wrote this unit in which kids see that and then also do it for themselves using their own background, their own ideas, their own struggles, their own turmoil to express that. And, uh, you know, that artistic side, I'm, I'm not really great with that, but, you know, together we were able to, to say, this is what they felt. And you can see that now show us how that works for you and, and make sure you have some content knowledge as well, which of course is always, you, know, you just have to have it somewhere. Right. And, and, it's pretty effective. The kids really like the like those projects. Well, um, like like I say, part of that was um, like you know showing showing them the places that we went to and and create like as simple as creating a slideshow. Like here's here's these places and here's how they tie to the things we're learning. Um, and uh, and also we, we we started to incorporate this thing about flags because that was an experience. Dave talked about it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Every, Everywhere we went in Belfast or Derry, you knew what kind of ground you were standing on because you could see the Union Jack or it was in your face or you could see the tricolor, you know. So we started to put together this thing about flags. Um, we, we had been introduced to, to a poet who, who used to be the head of Corimila, uh, Padraig Otuma. Uh, he, has, he has a wonderful podcast, by the way, um, talking about poetry. Um, but uh, but Padraig... Padraig had written a poem about the experience of being a person from Cork coming to Belfast 
and seeing these flags and seeing these uh, burnings of tires and seeing this graffiti and seeing this broken glass. Uh, and so um, we like use, using his poetry and then also using the words of the kids who had, who had been at the wave trauma center with Alan McBride. Um, I think like we just sort of wanted to get that boots on the ground feeling like one thing that I knew before Dave and I went to Northern Ireland, I had gone on a tour with other teachers uh, with a grant, uh, a Yale grant where I had gone to Selma, Birmingham, uh, Selma, Birmingham, um, mm, uh, Montgomery mm-hmm. and, and New Orleans and, and looked at like the, the civil rights stuff. And I, you know, that was, that was the first time that, that was uh, several years before we went to Northern Ireland, but that was the first time I really had that feeling of the ghosts. Uh, you know, when you walk on those sidewalks and you feel those things, uh, and one, one thing that I would say about Montgomery, Alabama, that really struck me that I never would have known. And I wouldn't have been able to bring back to students if I hadn't actually stood there. Like I, you, you can read Taylor branch you know, and you read about, um, I'm forgetting his name now, but the, 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 the minister before Martin Luther King in Montgomery and, and the kind of inflammatory stuff that he would write on the little board outside his church. Until I went to Montgomery, I never realized that that church where uh, Vernon, I forget his name, where that preacher had written that inflammatory stuff like segregation in heaven and stuff like that for his sermons. If you walk past that church, it's only a couple of blocks to the state house of Alabama. So one thing that Taylor Branch didn't mention is that when you have those inflammatory sermons about segregation outside that church, if you were you know, if you were a politician, state politician in Alabama, you had to drive by that church to get to the state house. So making those kind of connections, this is how close this is to that. So when you walk the streets, you're like, in, in Northern Ireland, you're like, this is how close the Shankill Road is to the Falls Road. This is like really close and there's no way you can really get that until you walk it. Mm-hmm. And I, right. I, like, you know, sorry to cut you off. We, we, uh, we took some photographs by uh, what they called the peace wall. Mm-hmm. And so if you're teaching students in New Haven, Connecticut, and you mentioned the peace wall, it, it, it was only when we got there that we showed that it was actually a, a division wall. It was, it was more of a, more segregation involved. It, it, it kept the peace literally by separating both parties versus a peace wall, which was integrating and incorporating. And, and that, and as well as being at the place where the Bloody Sunday massacre occurred and seeing one preserved wall that was meant to show where the military bullets had actually struck, um, you know, some kind of retaining wall. To, to be able to say, like, these are the kind of munitions that were being deployed against civilians who were, who were protesting, attempting to peacefully protest, you wouldn't get that sense unless, unless you stood there, you know? And I had to stand there with Dave because Dave, you know, he's military and he could say, these are 1.62 millimeter, you know, whatever it was, he's telling me exactly what they were using, uh, what the police were using or what the British military really were using on the day of bloody Sunday. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
You're right. Until you're on the ground, you can't tell how spatially close some things might be or how proximal things are. But I think the sense of ghosts also gives you a sense of how close things are temporally. Right. Sure. Like, you know, like somebody a couple of years ago was like, you know, think about think about history in chunks of like your life. Right. So the American Civil War is just about two two of my lifetimes ago. Right. I can sort of conceptualize that. Right. And that's yeah. not that long ago. Right. Two of my lifetimes ago. Right. So and I, I read a great line, uh, Ross Gay, a poet uh, the other day. I read a line of his where he said, um, we all know that nothing happens only when it happens. I was like, that's, yeah, that nails it, right? That absolutely nails it, right? And I think, oh, I'm so stealing that. Yeah, I am stealing <laughs> the shit out of that. Yeah. So, so I think that if students, again, to go back to historiography, right, if students are allowed, invited into the fight, Right. I mean, like I was, you know, to go back to the screenwriting and, and movies, like I always say that one of the funnest things about seeing a movie is having a fight about it afterwards. Like, like, what do you think about that? And like, yeah, yeah, that's the fun part of a, seeing a movie. You're seeing a player, right? Having a beer, a cup of coffee, getting in a fight over it afterwards. And I try to convince my students that's the same thing true about disciplines. Right. You know, if you're an earth scientist, if you're a physicist, if you're a chemist, right, whatever, if you're a dancer, right. Yeah. Having a cup of coffee or having a beer with people in your discipline and like rolling up your sleeves and like getting into it with each other. Right. That's mm. that's the fun part of being a member of that discipline. And I think if students felt that about history, not only the location, but were invited to feel the ghosts. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you're walking around Ireland and you can feel those ghosts. You're walking around New Haven and you can feel the ghosts. Yeah. Right? And so if you're if you're open to noticing the ghosts and talking about the ghosts, then yeah. all of a sudden history is really different. Mm -hmm. right? And 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 I think kind of that's that's what I think we need to be striving for. It's like this openness to experience and mm -hmm. openness to history that's not yeah. past. Right. It's. You know, in a funny way, ghosts are alive, right? And and that's yeah. that's why history matters. Eric, you just made me reflect on like in New Haven, um, you know, they the ninety one connector, you know, tore yeah. tore through the Italian neighborhood. And the reason why the town of East Haven is so Italian is because all those houses were wiped away, and there was a mass migration uh, from New Haven. We still have the Worcester Square neighborhood, but that neighborhood used to travel. Uh, south of there for quite a few blocks. And now uh, that's just the highway and Ikea, et cetera, the post office. But it used to be like a really culturally rich Italian neighborhood with like a million different Italian clubs, et cetera, et cetera. And that was cut right in half. And that other half moved out to East Haven and into the suburbs and, and created something entirely different. Um, but, you know, you, so when you're on Worcester Street in New Haven, you are feeling this incredible Italian cultural place. Um, but basically, it's, it's less than half of, of the neighborhood that it used to be. So it's a relic. It's like a one-block relic from something that used to live and breathe and now is, is you know, food has kept it there. Yeah. The fact that Peppies and Sally's and Consiglio's ha are so popular has kept something there that's just a ghost of what it once was. Yeah, but if you don't have the background knowledge, you you can't recognize absence. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So unless you know that, you can't mm -hmm. feel the absence, right? So 
Uh, and that's when we don't talk about certain things or we don't study certain things in, I mean, that same story is repeated everywhere. Right? So in Boston, you know, straight through Chinatown as they're building the interpass, right. And down here in New Jersey, outside of Newark, they built 280, which is, which is an extension right through African-American neighborhood. Right. Mm, yeah. So, and the reason that I Montgomery. know. That, yeah. Uh, Montgomery. They, they, so the church where King, where they planned the church where they planned the Montgomery bus boycott and when King suddenly became the leader, when they thrust that upon him, that church is boarded up now because there's no neighborhood because of the highway, there's just no neighborhood. Right. But I was going to say, the only reason that I know that about 280 is that, uh, I go to the Y and I'm at lunchtime Y. So I'm there with the old timers, right? So I'm, I'm talking to people in the sauna that are like 70 years old, 80 years old, and they can give me the contours of the absence, right? That I'm not going to get if I'm talking to somebody that's like 20. What do you, what do you think the students walk away with? What's the biggest takeaway that you think students walk away with when they go through the, this unit on, on Northern Ireland? Um, I hope, um, a few things, but I hope that we are really in keeping with uh, the school motto, uh, which I think is a really important thing to to forefront, um, which is uh, think, think critically, be responsible, get involved. Uh, and one thing we didn't talk about um, is that, so this is, this, this is the movement through the years. Freshman year, they have a one semester class, Holocaust and human behavior. That's their facing history class. Sophomore year, they have a one semester class about judgment and justice that now includes uh, the Armenian genocide, South Africa and Northern Ireland used to include uh, Rwanda as well. Um, uh, junior year, they're working on a historical junior thesis uh, that's American history, but they're, they're, trying to uh, put together some of these critical ideas and looking at American history. And then senior year is the most sort of get involved part. And they do a social action project where they identify a problem in their community or the world. And then they do something to address that problem. Um, so they have to call on some skills that are like, um, that go beyond the classroom. One of, one of the rules of the social action project is it can't just be like bring people to the school to do something. They have to get out of the school. They have to talk to people in the community or the police department or whatever it is, depending on what their social action project is. But that's those are graduation requirements, and that's the way that, that New Haven Academy is a facing history school, is that every year there's something where students are taking history, examining their own lives, examining a case study, uh, and then somehow uh, joining that together or, or making some, some observations and, and uh, some sort of presentation. You know, woven into that, there's these sort of capstone projects where every year, but especially in sophomore and senior year, uh, there's a reflection on the learning they've done and what it means. Mm -hmm. So I think just taking away um, an ability to, to think critically and to see the, the antithesis of what you were talking about with Holocaust studies. And I think this actually serves the woman who, who actually founded Facing History, uh, Margot Strom, Margot Strom, in the 1970s, 1976, this was exactly her 
thesis is like people were teaching the Holocaust then, but they were teaching it that like the Germans were bad and did this thing to the Jews. And there was no sort of reflection on what is it in all of us that otherizes people? What is it in all of us that makes us comfortable within our group and makes us push away other groups, right? And what does that look like in different contexts? What kind of assumptions do we make? Uh, there's things we do with the freshmen that we, we trick them a little bit. We get them to sort of say things and see things a certain way. And then we say, oh, did you see what, what you just did? Do you see what just happened? Mm -hmm. um, all in the service of making them not take things at face value. And I hope that they grow up to be people who don't just see something on the internet and immediately share it. Mm -hmm. I hope they grow up to be the kind of person who sees something on the internet and says, are there other sources that are saying that as well? Mm -hmm. Let me see where else that is, you know? To, and to me, one of the takeaways from hearing you guys talk about it today is that uh, my real concern with pain as an object of study sort of pain mm. as a as an academic object of study right as a mm. as a vehicle for teaching something as opposed to pain being a lived experience and being a, a live emotion right so i think some ways some curriculum sort of homogenize pain right and, and mm. like flatten pain right so so if we're talking about you know the enslavement of africans or the civil war or the mm. tulsa race massacre or whatever it might be that it's that it's teaching us about tolerance or racism and that's all great, but it's also has to be respectful for what it was and not just as a, a metaphor or a vehicle for getting a, like at a deeper understanding of something yeah. else. Right. So, uh, you know, so I think we were saying earlier kind of that so often black pain is used in that way, right? Black pain mm -hmm. is sort of commodified black pain is homogenized and then kind of mm. rolled out in these curriculum, mm. right? Not as a lived thing, not as a ghost that's still there, not even as like, you know, just walk out in the damn street. And like mm. a, friend, a friend of mine was like somebody's African-American uh, woman. Somebody said, Oh, you know, do you want one of these like signs that say black lives matter? And she's like, I'm a sign that says black lives matter. Mm. Right. Like, mm. so, so all of this stuff is real. And, and it, it reminded me that when I was first starting at Montclair state, I was teaching a, uh, developmental literacy course. So these are students who, you know, were accepted to college, but whose literacy skills on a standardized test said you need some extra skill development. So sort of a problematic course. Um, mm. But so in the course, I was like, what do you guys want to read? Right. I'm not going to pick something for you because I shouldn't pick something for you. Right. I want something. I want you to identify something that you're interested in. Right. And so this was, you know, mid aughts. And so one of the students was like, uh, can we read Angela's Ashes? You know, that's like really popular right now. Can we read Angela's Ashes? And I was like, sure, sure. Let's read Angela's Ashes. Right. And so after about two weeks of reading Angela's Ashes, one of the students was like, can we stop reading Angela's Ashes? And I was like, sure. Why? They're like, this is just pain. Right. This is just sorrow on a week in and week out basis. And I got enough of that right now. Right. I don't need any more pain. I don't need any more sorrow. And I was like, yep. Yep. Wow. Like, you know, curriculum is here for us, not the other way around, right? So, yeah. like, if Angela's Ashes is not working for you because of the pain, yeah. thank you for being strong enough and thank you for being honest, honest yeah. enough to tell me to my face that you don't want to read this because let's stop. So we stopped and we started reading something else, right? But, mm. but not every student feels the level of self-efficacy that my student did or your student did to yeah. say, like, enough of this kind of, like, commodified pain, 
right? Like, yeah. this is real. Like, this is real people's pain. And, and we need to address it in that way. What a moment of empathy, too, that yeah. that student had that feeling from Angela's Ashes. Because I know my experience of, of reading Angela's Ashes was what I got out of it was the twinkle in his eye. You know, like when I remember that book, I remember, I remember him like, in, like just really enjoying shitting in an apple orchard or, <laughs> or, or like the, the woman who has sex with him when he first comes back, comes to America, you know? And I, I, I guess it's cause I like, I, I, I didn't know him, but I like saw him tell stories live and stuff. And I experienced the person and I, I read some of his other books too. And there, it's always the twinkle in the eye. Mm-hmm. So it's only you saying that that I'm like, oh yeah, all the kids dying, the constant death of, of and and um, it's it's interesting. You can experience that book either way. You can experience it as, oh my God, this is so much pain, or you could be at a point in your life where you experience it, it as like, wow, watch this guy rise above pain again right. and again because yeah. he enjoys life so much right. and he's such a funny guy. Right. You know, that shows us the power of like, you know, again, not, not pigeonholing people and being open to humanity in its broadest sense, you know? So, mm. um, and it seems like that's what this teaching the troubles in Northern yeah. America does, both for the students and, and for you and Dave and the other people that get involved in it. I want to thank Saul and David again for sharing their time and insights with me today. I encourage you to check out the Teaching the Troubles blog where they share more of their perspective. I also encourage you to check out previous episodes of this podcast and stay tuned for future ones. Stay safe. Thank you.